Welcome to Gathering Gold. This is Cheryl Paul. And I'm Victoria Russell. When this episode comes out, if all goes according to plan, it will come out on November 5th, which is a very special day. It's Cheryl's 50th birthday. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) And so today we wanted to take some time to talk about this birthday that Cheryl is approaching, this transition and this next stage. And we're going to start with a story from Cheryl about something she experienced this past summer. So I was swimming this summer, which I love to do. I love the water. I love swimming pools. And I was in sort of a meditative state, which can happen when you're swimming back and forth. And I became aware of my body and this lightness that I felt in my body in the water, um, this experience we can have in water of weightlessness, anti-gravity. And I was thinking about approaching 50 and what it felt like to have this experience of lightness and weightlessness and joy Connecting back to my childhood and one of my great sources of joy in childhood was being in the swimming pool. And so I think swimming itself connotes, brings up for a lot of people, this childlike place of freedom and joy and spontaneity and play. And I was in this, in this field, in this space, in this meditative place inside myself feeling the somatic experience of lightness. And this phrase came to me of aging backward, of what would it be like to go through my second half of life sort of releasing places inside that I don't need anymore, shedding the barnacles, letting them go, becoming lighter and more free and more playful as the years and the decades move on. And I loved this phrase and this image and this vision of what aging could be like because we live in this culture that is very anti-aging, that worships youth. We think we're old when we're 30. It breaks my heart when I hear people say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's really quite sick and toxic, the messages that we receive about aging from such a young age, our, our complete obsession with youthfulness. And so to have this other vision come through felt so delightful and felt so hopeful And I thought about how does one become lighter and more joyful as we age? And I've been thinking about this for years. This wasn't the first time I've had that thought. Because what I've tended to notice when I observe older people is that we tend to fall into two categories. And of course, it's not binary. There are gradations along these 
these two extremes, but we think of it in two different ways that we can become more calcified as we age, more set in our ways, more committed to the idea that we are right and everybody else is wrong, more committed and entrenched into our convictions or the other type of older person I've seen seems to embody more flexibility, more lightness, more joy, more suppleness. Maybe not in body, but perhaps also in body, but definitely in spirit. And so I wonder, what are the factors that allow us to age into suppleness and lightness? And to age in a way that connects us back into perhaps a childhood that we didn't even have to begin with. Because so many of us, especially as highly sensitive people, tended to take on the family pain. We were the lighthouses. We were the funnel that absorbed and received the unlived lives, the unworked trauma, the ungrieved pain of the family and the families that came before us, the ancestors, it's a great burden. It's a great heaviness to carry as a child. Not to mention our own pain. And so what would it be like to recapture and reclaim a childhood lost, a childhood that perhaps we never fully got to experience? What needs to happen? And I think one of the things that needs to happen is that we have to be willing to go into the pain, into the dark places, into the shadow. Feel it. Accompany ourselves. And let ourselves be in company, be witnessed, be held by safe, loving others as we heal those painful places, both ours and not ours, or what didn't start with us, and then let them go. That the healing is what allows them to move through and to release and then reconnect with our intrinsic goodness and lightness and play and joy. So in an ideal world, childhood would be this time of carefree play and innocence and joy, but that's not usually how it goes for most people. But maybe our expectations are flawed. I started to think maybe our expectations are flawed. Maybe childhood is what happens in the second half of life when we heal the first half. Hmm. Maybe childhood is what happens in the second half of life when we heal the first half. And it's like how I think about marriage or any long-term committed relationships. We think that all the good stuff, all the infatuation and romance and ease and play, all of that has to be there right off the bat, right in the beginning. That's the message we receive, right? But actually, 
When people are married for decades and they're evolving together in some way, the good stuff often comes later, the really good stuff, the gold of a marriage. It's like when Esther Perel says that some people have two or three marriages in their lifetime all with the same person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel that in my marriage very much. I feel that we are entering into maybe a second or third marriage right now where there is so much more ease and play and goodness between us. It almost feels like a different marriage. And I so look forward to what we get to experience together after going through a lot of really hard stuff as we've been working out our collisions of childhood together. So could it be the same thing in some way? Could there be some way in which when we go into that heaviness, that lead that we talked about in one of our early episodes, that it does transform into gold, right? We talk about older years as the golden years, maybe that's what that means. I just figured it out. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, maybe that's what the golden years mean. Maybe it's having the courage and the resources to be able to go into the lead and the heaviness and then and then emerge into that that swimming pool, that place of of watery sunshine and lightness that allows us to experience something golden. You know, I think about those 95-year-old people who have that, that lightness of being the twinkle in their eye, you know, people like the Dalai Lama who are always laughing. They always look like they're laughing, chuckling, delighting in some way. And it's not denial and it's not spiritual bypassing. It's something so deep and so rich. And I feel like I'm dipping my toe into that as I cross over this threshold, holding that vision that this midlife passage is so potent in terms of the seeds we plant taking root in the second half of life, the seeds having more potency than they do in other times let's say from 45 to 55, somewhere in there, what we call midlife, not necessarily those years, but somewhere in there. And that part of the seeds I'm planting are around envisioning how I see what I would like to see unfold in these next five or six decades, should I be so lucky? Hmm. 
what's coming to my mind is how you often talk about how healing is nonlinear. And what you're saying is almost like that in a way, aging can be less linear than we (laughs) are taught to think about it. Yes. And I think that people do experience that all the time, but we just, we are, we just grow up with these stories about how, how you, you are supposed to unfold according to certain timelines, you know? Mm, Yes. But we see how people have like a second adolescence in their 40s or, (laughs) you know, like we see how these things aren't, aren't always linear, right? Yes. For better or for worse. It's like you can, you can know that and see it and try to work with it or it can take over you, it seems like. Mm. Yes, we do see it. And and I love what you're saying about the nonlinear approach to aging because we do tend to see everything in a linear fashion. And I think that's the masculine model on a number line. You go from zero to 70 or 80 or 90 or 100, and that's it. And every year progresses after the neck, the last but what if it's not that way? In some ways that defies logic and science and rationality through the lens of the soul that we, we don't age linearly. And yet in another way, we do. It's holding that polarity of recapturing innocence and play and lightness as we do the deeper heavy work and also growing into more wisdom, right? And so the vision of the older person is not just one of they're like a child. They have that childlike quality, but also that profound wisdom that can only come with age. And I think a profound sense of responsibility. Mm. Yeah, like a profound sense of the responsibility of being an adult and the grief that comes with just living and loving and losing, you know, different things. And it's making me think of a quote that I mentioned in an early episode, I think, that Richard Rohr quotes a lot. I don't think he was the first person to say it, but I'm not sure who did. But he, he talks a lot about transcending and including. And that just keeps coming to my mind mm-hmm. as we talk about this, that that you're including. It's almost like in some ways you can be more honest than as a child. Because I kind of remember as a kid being like, I'm supposed to be this innocent, pure little kid. I shouldn't have <laughs> these feelings or these experiences, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is you're a human being from the start. So... Yes, you are. There is no such thing as like 100% purity and innocence. And so it's almost like you can be more honest as you get older. Yes. And something you just said about the longer we live, the more loss we're going to have. Yes, because that's what happens when you live. 
And so the people we love who are older than us and sometimes younger than us are going to die. We are going to experience breakups. We are going to experience all these transitions, which are all losses, not just the literal loss of losing somebody you love, losing an animal you love. There is that. And then there is just the loss that comes from being a human and living. And I think that's, of course, a critical piece of maintaining the suppleness, maintaining the fluidity and coming back to the water metaphor is the willingness to grieve through those losses. That's why I talk about transitions so much because that's where we can become calcified is when we don't understand and we're not guided through the grief and the loss, through the multiple transitions, both what we call positive, right? Graduating from college or getting married or having a baby and the ones that we call negative, they all include grief, right? And even the ones that the highly sensitive people feel all the time, the grief of this time of year being an autumn this space that we're moving towards in this particular moment in autumn when the veils are so thin and we're closer to the spirit world and the ancestors. And we feel all of that. And so the willingness to cry regularly or to grieve regularly is, I think, another essential piece. And that the more we grieve, the more supple we are and the more light we are, the more laughter there is. And so it's holding again those seeming dualities, which I don't think they are at all, of grief and laughter, of the sadness, the pain, and the joy. Because in the end, it's all about being in an open-hearted state. I think that's the difference between people who shut down, become calcified, have been unwilling or unable to grieve through their multiple losses. And so the defenses just keep getting thicker and thicker and thicker. And there's more and more walls and barnacles and more and more entrenchment in the illusory, the false ways that we try to gain a foothold. You know, whether it's our addictions or our compulsions or however we attempt to maintain control that we haven't been willing to grieve or able to or guided to grieve. And then those for whom there is more lightness of being, and of course this is, I'm sure, largely oversimplified, but there is an element, I would suspect, that those who have more lightness of being as time goes on, that one element of that is because they've been able to maintain that relationship with their sadness, with the sad place in the heart, with the pain, with the grief of daily life and, and older places that emerge. You've also talked about how we live in a death-phobic and grief-phobic 
culture. And you and I were talking before this recording a bit about how much we are up against when it comes to aging. Yes. <laughs> and I'm wondering if we can unpack that a little bit. Some yes. of the external forces that we are up against in trying to maybe see aging in a different way or see yourself aging in a different way. Yes. So that part is inescapable because of the culture, the very image-based culture coupled with the death-phobic culture, the age aging-phobic culture. So those two values, right, the value of image that we worship, of youth, of perfection, juxtaposed to the terror of grief and death, dangerous combination. Again, pretty much once you hit 30, which just like, come on, people, really? 30? <laughs> so young. <laughs> but there it is. And so being aware of the lines on your face, being aware of that your body is different in some way, being aware of the gray hairs. Am I aware of all of that? Absolutely, I am aware of all of that. I am aware of my gray hairs. I see them. Sometimes they don't bother me and sometimes they do. I see the lines on my face. Sometimes they don't bother me and sometimes I'll look in like, there's some really bad angles, like when you look in a car window. <laughs> I'm like, holy, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Who is that very elderly human looking back at me? <laughs> I'm like, gosh, should I go do something about that face? Um, and so far I haven't, and I have no judgment for people, you know, trying to look to cosmetics to help themselves feel better or feel younger or look younger. I totally get that. And I have, I am of two minds, right? I, yes, I see the lines. Yes, my body is different. Yes, I notice. But then I have this other mind of, but it's not the most important thing, right? And so, I have this one mind that just gets very bent out of shape about the messages that we receive about aging and really wants to just give the middle finger to the patriarchal <laughs> model and the cosmetic industry. And I don't know who else is behind all of this that wants to keep us small, that, that has made business, that makes money off of our fear of aging, that wants to put us in any kind of box that, that doesn't encourage a mindset of accepting ourselves as human beings who get older, right? It's so damaging. And then there's the other side of me that can fall prey to that in moments. But mostly it's the first one that wins out, at least so far, because... I just really can't be bothered with the amount of time and money and energy it takes to, to try to fight time, right? It seems like a futile battle to try to fight time. 
when I was 22, I had a coworker who I think was in her 40s, maybe. And I heard her say once, I have earned every single one of these gray hairs. I'm not mm. dying them. <laughs> and I love that. it blew my mind just because I had never heard a woman say that. <laughs> yes. I God, I wish we could transform how we see the evidence of living on our bodies. Our bodies tell the stories of our life, that we are alive, that we have laughed and cried and born and breastfed children, perhaps, and just passed through time and moved and grieved and slept too much and slept too little and eat and not eat and all of these, this evidence of being alive. And I wish there was more of that message. You can find it. It's out there, you know, just like there are body positive Instagram accounts, which are so fabulous. There are aging positive and gray hair positive. And then I think as women, as you and I talked about a few days ago, there is that extra layer of like the gray hair, right? For men, what was the phrase you used? Silver fox. Silver fox. They get to be <laughs> a silver fox? Yeah. Yeah. They get to look more distinguished. More distinguished. Right. And what 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 do we get to be? Old hags? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so there is for sure that element in aging, and I'm sure I will become more and more acquainted with it as I move through my 50s. I think for me, the more I can connect from the inside out, right? Take as, as good care of my body as I can, tend to my emotional realm, my mind, my spirit, and let the rest be what it is. That's when I feel more connected and more anchored and more like, you know, just F you to anybody <laughs> who's trying to tell me that how I'm aging is wrong or unattractive, right? And I should try to change it in some way. So I don't know. I might choose to dye my hair at some point. I reserve that right. I might choose to do some treatment for my face. I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is what I know right now. And what I know right now is I'm okay. You know, is is I actually don't pay that much attention to it. I don't spend a whole lot of time looking in mirrors. I try to avoid those car windows and <laughs> the sunlight that seem to illuminate every little line those target um, dressing room mirrors oh no 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 <laughs> come on really if they want you to buy clothes they should have more flattering they should be candle lit they should be candle lit oh <laughs> why hasn't anybody thought of this the fake ones you know <laughs> the <Yeah>. fake ones <laughs> fake candles truly because Everything gets smoothed out in candlelight. <laughs> it does, and it's all good. It's like all good. When I get in the bath, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> right? 
Ya. Can I ask you about something that this could take us on such a tangent? So we can just do our best. Yeah. One thing that comes up for me as an internal obstacle, I feel, when it comes to aging and has since I was a little kid. And I'm just really curious if other, you know, like clients that you work with, people who follow your work who are highly sensitive, mm-hmm. who maybe have struggled with OCD, if this comes up for other people too, is this difficulty with moving forward because I feel like I haven't done a developmental stage right like, oh, I wasn't enough of a kid and I didn't do it right. Mm. And therefore, I feel like I can't let go and move forward. Or same with being a teenager or being in my 20s, being a young mm. adult. Like, I somehow didn't do it exactly right or enough. I didn't move through what I was supposed to like move through. And now I'm having a hard time letting go and moving into the next stage of development. Mm. Is this something you hear from other people? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's very much that highly, highly sensitive tipping into OCD brain that thinks there is a right or a perfect or an ideal and that you're supposed to do it in that one way. So I hear that piece of it, like we've talked about in other... in a different, totally different topic, but just like around Christmas, have like the idea yeah. of getting everything just right because that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. And the star is supposed to go just right there at the top of the Christmas tree. And it's just going to bug you <laughs> if it's not there. And so I think extrapolated out to a much more serious and far reaching part of the way we think of ourselves is into life stages. This is what I was supposed to do as a teenager. I was supposed to be wild and free and sow my wild oats and drink alcohol and whatever we think, you know, a, a proper teenager does <laughs> or an improper. <laughs> and this is what the 20s. And so I think it's a it's a big pill to swallow for certain brain wirings to let go of all of those shoulds and templates. And to name that for what it is. And I think there's an element of grief in there as well, that the idea of a perfect adolescent or the right adolescent or the right way to do your 20s is in some ways also a defense against the profound sense of loss and grief that highly, highly sensitive people feel that the life stage is over. And so mm. the trap is, if I had done it right, I wouldn't feel the grief. Mm. And that's a huge trap. Right? It's a big part of regret, too, that comes up for a lot of people looking back over their life at certain life stages. That it's, it's the grief of unlived lives. You can only live the life you live. You can only make the choices you make. You can't live every life. And then there's just that great, big, existential grief that you only get one Mm. adolescence and you only get one childhood. You only get one decade of your 20s. 
So whenever there's that mindset of right or perfection, in some sense, it's a defense Mm. against grief. That really resonates. And I feel like what we were talking about earlier about not being the nonlinear nature and transcending and including is like when you have a more expansive view of these things, Mm -hmm. you realize that actually certain things are over and gone in certain ways and need to be grieved, but certain things also come back or come to you for the first time. And you can still be in touch with different parts of yourself or different experiences just because one stage ends, it doesn't mean that you'll never feel certain ways again or never tap into certain parts of you again, right? Yes, absolutely. Yes, Victoria. And I love that you're bringing this in and you're speaking like somebody in midlife because that's just how wise you are. <laughs> I feel like I'm, but see, I think I feel like that's what's wrong with me. Oh, it's so what's right with you. <laughs> it's so what's right with you. But what I mean when I say that is that midlife is this time when we can look back. It's a lot of life review of looking back and asking ourselves what is it that I wish I could have experienced in adolescence that I didn't for whatever reasons that I can bring with me now, that I can resurrect? So this is why you see that second adolescence in a pretty unhealthy way we tend to see it with the, you know, the, the, the stereotypical sports car and, you know, the guy who gets divorced and goes off with a 30-year-old, Right. What is that? That is some longing for youthfulness, the sense that that stage of life is over, but also perhaps a longing to ignite the places that couldn't get ignited at that stage of life. And so we can bring them with us. That's what I mean about planting the seeds. What seeds do we want to bring with us into the second half of life? or at any time in life, when we look back and we long and we think that we missed it, we didn't do that stage right, what are the qualities that we're longing for, right? And so if it's like in adolescence, a more of a sense of spontaneity or freedom, it's like for me, when I think about my adolescence, I was so messed up around boys I had so many crossed wires because of my early life and because of my modeling that I never got to have that high school boyfriend where we just like walked through the halls together and, you know, had each other's hands in each other's back pockets and did our homework on the bed and stayed up late. I didn't have that. I didn't really have it in college either. I never had that because I didn't, I just didn't have enough of something inside of me that was able to sustain. I had plenty of first dates and then I typically shunned them. I couldn't do it. And I feel sad about that sometimes. And then I think, 
you know, this playful place with Dave where we pretend that we're each other's boyfriend and girlfriend. And we pretend like we're in high school and we talk as if we've always been together. And that Mm -hmm. remember when we were, we were both so lonely in high school and we met in the library and we were both there hiding out. Yeah, I remember. I remember how we went to the prom, but we just, we felt like these were not our people. We felt so different and we just left and took that long walk, you know, and went down to the beach. Yeah, I remember. And so it's through play and imagination that we can recapture some of the places that that we couldn't experience and maybe didn't even want to experience at those times. That just made me cry. Oh. <laughs> it's just so sweet. It's just yeah. so sweet. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. It's pretty sweet. And it, it evokes a place in me, again, of youthfulness, this same place of the swimming pool, of the liveness, the suppleness, the, the, the playfulness, right? What, what is it like to age holding the wisdom and the child, the elder and the child both? That's what I'm so curious about. Mm. So Cheryl, as you are in this place of pondering these questions for yourself and approaching this birthday, what is coming up for you? How are you attending to your four realms of self and and attending to your rhythms right now as you approach this birthday Mm. and this transition? Yes. So as I talked about a bit in the burnout and rest episode, I am in a year of more rest. I can't step away from all of my life and I don't want to, but I'm not taking on new projects. I'm not taking on really anything new that requires commitment. So again, in the, in the Jewish calendar and wisdom, the seventh year is the Shemitah year, the year of rest, agriculturally letting the land lie fallow, and reaping the goodness of what's already there. And then comes 50, the big seven times seven, seven cycles, seven times, and then is the Jubilee year, which is such a great name, the Jubilee year. I'm about to enter the Jubilee year, which is a year, biblically, of releasing indebtedness and all types of bondage. So all prisoners and captives were set free, all slaves were released, all debts were forgiven, all property was returned to its original owners, all labor stops for a year, and people bound by labor contracts were released from them. So this year of release, and I hear all of that as metaphor because of course we don't live in biblical times with 
slaves and those kinds of contracts. So what I hear is what do I get to be freed from? What old contracts will be released in this jubilee year? What imprisoned parts of me will be set free? What needs to be forgiven and will be forgiven? And then this second year of rest. So the 49th year would be the seventh year of that seven-year cycle. But then there's the 50th year, which I didn't even realize as I'm so consciously taking this year of rest that my 49th was really about slowing down all that momentum, right? You can't stop a car driving at 80 miles per hour in one second. You have to slow down. So my car was driving really fast. The 49th year was slowing down, but I still had some big projects that I needed to complete. And now this 50th is about deeper rest as best as I can. And for me to release contracts, deep, deep contracts, it's requiring a deeper layer of inner work, touching into places of pain that I haven't been ready to touch into. I've known that they're there but I'm ready now and I'm doing it. And every time I go in, I come out with more song and more voice and more breath. Every time I name and feel into these deep, deep places, something is released this jubilee, these contracts, this imprisonment, something gets released. And I find bound up in the pain is also my voice quite literally. I'm singing more. I do a deep dive and then I sing. And I have this one album that I just keep playing over and over again. And it's a lot of chanting, a lot of wordless, and I sing. I'm singing in the car and I'm singing in my studio and I light a candle and I sing and it's it's a voice in me that I haven't heard. It's all connected. The four realms are all connected right now. They always are. I can't separate the deep attention that I'm giving to my body, the deep listening, listening to my rhythms more closely than I ever have, listening to my need to lie down for 10 minutes, to take a nap if I can. I can't separate that out from everything else, the emotional layer, What's happening in my marriage? This place where my boys are at that is allowing me to pull back some from that primary role of mothering that I'm no longer the only son in their constellation. 
which I was for so long. It's all bound up together and it's it's like reclaiming it's reclaiming something. It's reclaiming some pieces of childhood that can only happen now for me anyway. spirituality and Jewish spirituality in particular is a really big part of your life. And, you know, you talked about the Shemitah year and the Jubilee year. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned to me recently that you're learning to read Hebrew. Yes. And that that this piece around your voice and your breath and singing is so important to you because – Singing is part of so many Jewish rituals. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if there's anything else that's coming mm-hmm. up for you in that realm that you might want to share. Yes. So last night I had the first of three birthday rituals that I've asked for from different female pods in my life, small groups. And one of the women in last night's ritual said to me, and she's studying to be a rabbi, and I met her in the, through the Jewish community. She said, 50 is about coming to counsel. And it landed, coming to counsel. Becoming elder, becoming one that people seek counsel from. Of course, I've given counsel for a very long time in the work that I do. And I continue, I will continue to do the work that I do in the way that I do it because I love it so much. And there's another way that I'm being called to counsel. And it has to do with serving more locally. It has to do with serving in in Jewish community, serving around life cycle, transitional events, weddings, deaths, bar and bat mitzvahs, b'nai mitzvah, births. So it's this confluence of my deepest passions in life for transitions, where transitions meet Jewish spirituality and ritual. So learning Hebrew is an important piece of that. And I have wanted to learn to read Hebrew for a very, 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 very long time. Those letters have called to me For my whole life, those letters have called to me. And I have tried several different times to learn, and always a block came up. It's felt impossible 
to learn. And I have a love of learning and I'm a very good student. So this was an interesting block (laughs) that came up and quite puzzling. And you were fluent in Spanish before, right? Yes. I love languages. Yeah. They come to me naturally. This is different because the characters are not English characters. Yes. Right. And this is about learning to read the Hebrew, not necessarily to speak it, but to read it so that I can follow along in the prayer book, so that I can offer Jewish ritual at some point, I think. It's, it's a priestess role. And in the Jewish communities, in the, especially in Jewish renewal, in the more progressive, very open, feminist, egalitarian, earth-based Judaism, which is the Judaism that speaks to me. There is actually priestess training, learning to carry that torch of ritual leader, the power of ritual that we've lost so much in our culture. So this is part of where I see myself going, and it's more than see myself going. It's where I am being led My dreams have shown this to me for many, many, many years that I am being called in this direction that is more local, more private, smaller, in person. My work is almost entirely on a screen. This is different, this place. And I... Again, I love I I love both places. The richness, the reach is very different from what I have in the screen in the global community. It's extraordinary, extraordinary gift there that I get to connect, that I am in the position I'm in of such such a privilege to be a guide for so many people in so many different parts of the world. I don't see that stopping. And this other place that is growing in me that requires that I pull back from creating a new course or a new book, you know, new anything right now, that requires that I reap the goodness of what already is, right? letting what I've developed to sit and to be, to grow in richness, right? to eat from the apples that are already there without having to plant a new tree. The tree's already there. And all those apples come. And with the Hebrew piece too, something opened in me when I made space. It's like my brain was too crowded. My soul was too busy with all of these other creative endeavors. I had to make the space to let the letters in. And, and then something opened and it started to make sense. And I also thought, you know, on the topic of an aging brain, how important it is to learn new things, to keep my brain supple, to push myself where it's hard to keep those synapses active. Mm. 
right? I hope I'm learning something new when I'm 95. Maybe that's when I'll learn, you know, Russian. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But why not? Yeah, it reminds me of the fantastic story in Daniel Siegel's book, Mind Sight, Mm -hmm. about the 92-year-old man who came to him for therapy, who had never been to therapy before, but his son brought him in because he thought he was depressed. And the old man learned to use the right side of his brain for Mm. possibly the first time in his life to start to identify his emotions and his feelings. Yes. And the man's wife said, he asked me for a massage for the first time in 60 years of marriage. <laughs> oh, it's such a moving that. story. And it's actually, it's the story is told in a blog post that's online. So I'll put it in the notes for this episode on mm. your website. Mm. I think it's my favorite part in that whole extraordinary book. The whole book yes. is amazing. But that really leaps out, doesn't it? This it really because does. we have this, yeah, we have this idea that it's all over after 30 or 50 or whatever age we have in our minds. And that's why we all love the stories of the 65-year-old who goes back to get their PhD or the 85-year-old that starts weightlifting and weight training. And the 92-year-old who learns how to feel his feelings and connect to his body. We love that so much because it flies in the face of this other very diminishing, harmful, dangerous message that says it's all over past 40. No. My gosh. Not even close. There's Betty Betty Soskin, a 100-year-old National Park Service ranger in California, still mm. showing up <laughs> to talk to year visitors. Old park ranger. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and I think something that you also shared with me, along with learning Hebrew and kind of really leaning into these different parts and reclaiming these different parts and listening to your body, you've identified something about your name that's important Hmm. to you. Yes. So my full name, my middle name, Cheryl Lisa Paul. And of course, I've only gone by Cheryl Paul. And adding a name or having a name change is an important part of many traditions around significant life events and transitions. And it marks a shift in identity and a shift in elements that we feel closer to, that we want to embody, that we seek to embody, that perhaps are not represented in our current name. And so for a while, I've been planning to start using my middle name, Lisa, more publicly 
know, in my, in my work life. And Lisa, me, it's a, it has a spiritual meaning. And so it very much reflects this place that I'm talking about in terms of embodying and being of service and counsel in a more spiritual way in the second half of life. Um, so different meanings that I've come across are devoted to God, oath from God. I, I really like devoted to God. And for me, I always feel like I have to qualify the word God, but for me, God is my relationship to nature, to the invisible, to oneness, to love, to service, to poetry, to that place of soul and expansiveness, me and beyond me, way bigger than me. And so when I when I even just see Cheryl Lisa Paul, it it's it's much more feminine. Paul is you know, typically a male name. So bringing in Lisa brings in the feminine, which is also my relationship to God, great mother, goddess, Shekhinah, mother trees the creek, the water, all feminine, my body, the feminine place that we all have access to, regardless of who we are. And so there's, there's another reclaiming, there's another stepping into, there's another place of, of voice and of song and of poetry. And I just, Cheryl Lisa Paul is it rolls off the tongue easier than mm-hmm. Cheryl Paul because of the L's, Cheryl Lisa, Cheryl Lisa Paul. I love that. I love that at 50, you can say, actually, this is my name. Mm. <laughs> yes. And it's been your name all along. Yes. But you are reclaiming it. Yes. And it reminds me of my grandmother. She always called me Cherylisa. 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 So there is that place of childhood and that place of ancestry also represented there. And it's so, it feels so full circle. Yes. Naming. We actually started this podcast talking about names in the very first <laughs> episode. You know, we did. It's the one of the first things that happens when a baby is born, right? Is they're given a name. Yes. Yes. Names are so powerful. And I think it's so powerful when people claim a name and change a name and say, no. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some element of aging, hopefully, when we are aging with some consciousness and some willingness to go into the hard, painful places, um, that invites us to say just that, this is who I am. Right? That place of voice, what voice really means. This is all of who I am. 
I love that. I think that's such a beautiful way to end. So Cheryl, if people want to find more of you and your work online, maybe they want to wish you a happy birthday. Mm. (laughs) Where can they go? I am on Instagram at Wisdom of Anxiety. And my website is conscious-transitions.com. And you can find me over at my other podcast, Perennials, or on Instagram at Perennials Podcast. And if you are enjoying Gathering Gold, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, rate it, leave a review, or share it with a friend who might enjoy the show. Cheryl, happy birthday. I love Mm -hmm. you. And I'm so happy you were born. Thank you, Victoria. (laughs) Thank you.